0: Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world joining us. We're thrilled you're here. We're going to jump into a new series today. First, I wanted to mention that the month of July is Disability Pride Month. And so we just want to acknowledge a community that often gets forgotten and not talked about in church. And often what happens at church is really, really ableist language. And so just want to acknowledge um, and throw our support uh, behind uh, the Disability Pride Awareness this month in July. Um... So we did earlier this year, we did a series called What About? And it was essentially, many of you like me and most of our team have been undergoing a process where your faith has changed and shifted and it no longer looks like it used to look. And what has happened through that process is for some of us, we begin to understand. And I don't like using the language of reconstructing your faith because like the idea is you deconstructed something and now you're gonna build something else that has to be once again, Deconstructed. So I think we have to have a better metaphor than that. But we're trying to, to suss out and sort out, what do we think about all this other stuff? Like there's stuff we've wrestled with, but then there's all this other stuff that just sort of, as we're going through the traumatic process of lo- kind of losing our faith in a sense, that we don't know where it fits and where it goes. And so we did a round of that. Lots of you said, okay, that was great, but I have other questions. And so we're going to do another round of that. This will last roughly 47 years. So, um, and you don't want to miss a Sunday because they're all going to be equally important. Um, but t- today I wanted to start with, and this is something that comes up in conversations a lot, and since um, we are, it is July 3rd and tomorrow is July 4th, I thought we should talk about church and, and state sort of, like the relationship and how that works. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a constitutional scholar, I'm, that's shocking to some of you, um, so I'm not going to lean from that side. I'm going to talk from the church side of this and what it might mean for us. And I have to just admit openly, July 4th is a complicated holiday for me. It really is. Um, I, I love grilling out. Um, that's really great. Um, I, I don't really like fireworks that much. I've never been a firework. I kind of like setting them off, which may mean I don't know what that means, but I kind of enjoy that piece of it. <laughs> but like just standing back and watching. How many of you just love, you get excited about standing and watching fireworks explode in the sky? Anybody? Wow. Everybody but me. <laughs> I, feel, I feel so alone. You don't either? Okay, good, good. Well, my favorite comedian, Pete Holmes, has this bit where he talks about watching fireworks go off and going, wow, I wish I felt anything. Um, and that's sort of what I feel watching fireworks go off. But I want to begin with a disclaimer. It's a complicated holiday for me, and I, I live with a uh, around this day, and the tension is, I, I really am grateful to live in America, I am. Now, I understand that my gratitude for that is born out of a ton of privilege, that my experience of America has been really, really different than a lot of people's experience of America. Can we just name that? That as a white, straight, cisgender male, uh, my experience of this country has been different than the experience of lots of other people of this country. And so there is this sort of sense of, I'm, you know, I'm glad I, li- I'm glad I live here, but then there's also this other thing called reality. And, and Thank you. Uh, there's the reality of being in this country, and uh, the reality of how this country treats, has treated and continues to treat lots and lots of people.? Right? It's, it's being grateful to live here, but knowing that right now, in this particular country um, that thought we were so far and prog- we'd progressed so far that people with a uterus no longer have the ability to decide what happens with their reproductive health, right? That the idea of LGBTQ plus people being able to marry who they love is now suddenly perhaps in danger. That we still have a deep-seated problem with white supremacy in this country that lots and lots of people want to ignore and not acknowledge. There's reality reality that our kids aren't safe at school because we would rather bow down to the gun uh, lobby than actually do something common sense. And by the way, what they often suggest is common sense isn't common sense. It's way away from common sense. Um, So I just want to acknowledge that, that this is a complicated, like everything else, it's messy. Life is messy. Being an American is a messy experience mixed with gratitude. And then also this, I feel really uncomfortable with some of the things we're doing as a country and the way we're treating people and the way we have treated people and that we don't want to acknowledge it. And we don't want to tell our kids about our past because we're afraid it'll hurt their feelings. Right? So there's all of this. And yeah, I didn't, I never sort of experienced, I did all the time, right? Because you do, but I never really like was knowledgeable that I was experiencing growing up this marriage of being Christian and being a good American. Does anybody, do you remember when you first began to notice that? Like for a long time, I didn't notice it. Like we would go to church, we'd go to vacation Bible school, and every single year at vacation Bible school at this little Free Will Baptist Church up a holler in eastern Kentucky, um, we would open every night with the same experience. We would say the pledge to the flag first. 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 By the way, if you want to get a real picture of this, drive by a church with a flagpole, and you'll see the American flag flying over the Christian flag, and they're telling you the truth. So we would say the pledge to the flag, then we would say a pledge to the Christian flag, which is in the Bible, and... I mean, if we're gonna be biblical, and then, then we say the pledge to the Bible. Right, anybody had that experience? And by the time you were done pledging, it was over because it took like 45 minutes <laughs> to get through all of the things we're pledging our allegiance to in that moment. And so I have memories of that as a kid, but it never dawned on me is this weird? Is this weird? Is it weird that we're at church pledging allegiance to a flag that somehow represents a country that I now would call an empire? Is that weird? And all my life, there were flags on stage, right? There was the American flag on one side, the Christian flag on the other side. You were sort of flanked by them. The first time I remember being uncomfortable, though, was probably in high school. We'd gone gone liberal. We left our free will Baptist background for the liberal denomination called the Southern Baptist Convention. (laughs) And I have this really, really vivid memory of being there on the July 4th weekend. And suddenly, like the the worship songs for that day were like the Star-Spangled Banner. (laughs) And as we're standing singing it, going like, look, I'm not a scholar, but why are we singing the Star-Spangled Banner at church? What exactly are we worshiping right now? Like when we we are, as a collected Jesus-y community, we're leading our people to pledge their allegiance to something else. What exactly are we worshiping in that moment? And then 9-11 happened. And it seemed like there was this renewed sense of patriotism. Toby Keith was huge at the time for singing songs about, you know, sticking boots in places. And it was like everybody suddenly was so like, all, we're all American here. We're, we're all pulling for the same thing. And that is we know exactly who we're against and we know who we should be blowing up. And that's what brought us together. But then there was a pesky group of people who were saying, I don't know that, I don't know that we, should, we should go to war in Iraq. I, 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 don't, I don't know that this is the right course of action. I don't know that we have enough evidence to just launch a war unilaterally. The United Nations is not on board with this. Like, who, who are we to do that? And that was the first time I remember looking at the leadership of our country and going, wow, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? What, what's the point? I remember watching in real time on television the shock and awe campaign that hit Baghdad. I remember thinking, is this not weird that this is on our television and that people around our country are watching it and they're cheering and they're celebrating that this is what our country's doing on a global scale. You know, it's kind of shocking that when you look at the, like tomorrow is our 246th birthday as a nation and less than 20 of those years have been spent without war. Think about that. How many of you in this room are 246 years old? Just making sure we didn't have vampires. Just making sure. Now think about this. Imagine, imagine being, that's the age, and only 20 years of that, less than 20 years, less than two decades, we, were, we haven't been engaged in an armed conflict somewhere in the world. Whether it was here, or somewhere else. It's kind of staggering. And then something happened to me. I was, uh, I'd found this person you probably never heard of named Rob Bell. He's a, not a well known figure, hasn't been on Oprah. Um, and Rob was having a conference in his church in Grand Rapids, and it was called Everything uh, Isn't She Beautiful? And I went, and uh, each session they gave you something for free. Like they gave a book away that they had gotten a deal. And they gave us this book by a guy named Greg Boyd, and it was called Myth of a Christian Nation. Anyone read Myth of a Christian Nation? And I opened that book and I read it and all of the little lights on my dashboard that had been blinking were like now blaring. Because I realized, oh my gosh, I've been, I've been told this thing my entire life that America is a Christian nation, that what we do is good, that we are God's, essentially God's chosen people to run the world and to tell the, the world how to do their business. And Greg in that book sort of brings out, actually, that's not how this is supposed to work. And actually, there is no such thing as a Christian nation. Because a Christian nation would actually, I don't know, follow the teachings of Jesus. And you wouldn't have a nation very long, probably. But this idea of a Christian. So all that began unraveling. And then I made the mistake of studying church history. Because when you actually start knowing your history, you have lots of questions about the things they're telling you is your history. And what I discovered is that this whole God and country thing, this whole draping a flag around a cross, would seem so unbelievably foreign to our ancient ancestors. Like if somebody had gone into an early Christian meeting space and brought a Roman eagle, which was the sign of Rome, essentially a flag of Rome, and they would have brought in the Roman standards and put them in the space. I can't imagine nobody going, well, I guess we should pledge allegiance to Caesar. I guess we should sell ourselves out to the empire. I just think they would have found it unfathomable. And here's why. Jesus led a resistance movement against empire. Now, I I realize that that is not how the Jesus story has been framed for most of us, for most of our lives. Um, Jesus, and when I talk about stuff like this, I get tons of pushback. Jesus didn't come to change the world politically. Jesus came to change, he came to save our souls. I just don't actually ever see Jesus say that in the words we have attributed to him. What I do see Jesus doing is leading a movement that got him killed. Leading a particular kind of movement. What was Jesus resisting? The brutality of empire. Jesus was resisting empire. Jesus literally died challenging Caesar. And I've heard so many times people say, listen, Jesus didn't tell Caesar how to run Rome. Yeah, he kind of did. Or, or worse, he actually kind of said, Rome, Rome. Stop being Rome. You being you is killing everything in the world. You should do something else. And he offered an alternative vision. And if you want proof that Jesus' death was political, listen to what the earliest gospel records. In Mark 15, Jesus is being crucified. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The notice of the formal charge against him, this is why he's being executed, was written, the king of the Jews. Jesus is being crucified For treason. He's being killed for saying there's a way to run the world that is just, compassionate, and equitable, and this ain't it. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna start building communities that act as if that's this, this vision, this vision of justice and compassion. I'm gonna create communities that begin to live as if this is how the world works. And eventually that became enough of a threat. Nonviolent, they didn't round up his followers, they let them alone for a time, but Jesus ultimately is executed. And for the first 300 years of church history, for the first 300 years, there was, this was the dominant posture, that the church stands as an alternative to the empire. That was the posture. Now, is it possible that there were some people who were coalescing in Jesus-y communities that disagreed with that? Maybe. I mean, these early communities were way more, I'll talk about this next week, they were way more diverse than we've ever been told. We sort of were taught that like there was Jesus, and then there was the apostles, and they started churches, and they all agreed all the time. How many of you were told that, sort of? Yeah. That the one They disagreed once, but then they all found peace and harmony pretty quickly. No, that's not the case. The earliest layers of the Christian tradition, wouldn't have even been called Christian at the time, but the earliest layers of the tradition was really unique and diverse. They didn't agree on almost anything. Depending on where you went, you would find a community that understood Jesus very differently. And that was the first few hundred years. And then you have the conversion of Constantine, where uh, essentially the Roman emperor becomes, uh, can I slander him, pretends to become Christian, and essentially converts the church. For the first 300 years, the idea for these early Christians was, we stand as an alternative. Our communities must be an alternative, to the brutality of empire. The empire starves people, and it executes people, and it harms people, and it subjugates people. And we have to offer a vision of what the world really could be like. And that was what the church was about. Now, let's not idealize them, right? We tend to idealize, like, I love when people say, I wanna be a first century church. Anybody ever said that? I've said it. And then you realize the first century church did not have air conditioning. (laughs) you put that hand right back down. Uh, We don't need to idolize the early church. As as, uh, our founding pastor Stan said last week, the early church was the infant, not the archetype. It wasn't the end-all, be-all. It was the seed that was planted. And, And so it wasn't perfect, and it shouldn't be idealized. But what they had in those early years was a commitment that our communities must resist the brutality of the way the world gets run. Because... The people running the world do not care about those who are marginalized and oppressed. They do not care about how their policies and plans affect those who already have nothing. And we must stand as an alternative. We must be a place where hungry people get fed, where sick people get healthy, where people who have been isolated and and kicked out to the margins are brought in and made family. This is what our community must be like. And I I love... Paul is such a conflicted person, right? The Apostle Paul, who wrote at least seven, probably only seven letters in the New Testament. Really conflicted person. Um, There's a lot of stuff written in his name that he didn't write, scholars think. And and so a lot of the reason people are mad at Paul is like, he didn't even write it, but it's in his name. But he actually makes, in one of his early letters, Galatians, what some scholars say is the very first egalitarian statement in human history. The the first statement, making people equal. And here's what he writes in Galatians. You are all God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And then here comes the big part. This is how did his brain get here? He must have had some sort of help. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you, do you get the impact of that? It's a way of saying in this community, we are not dividing things up based on gender. In this community, we're not dividing up who has power, who has worth, and who has, based on socioeconomic status. In this community, we're not going to base it on your religious past experiences. In this community, at this table, every single human being sits as an equal to the other. Now that's a powerful, and you begin to see that, right? In the book of Acts, you see these early followers of Jesus saying, Who needs what? You're hungry? Here's some bread. You need housing? Come stay with me. You see them doing really practical things like, the empire isn't coming to save us. We have to save ourselves. And the way we save ourselves is through what we would call today's mutual aid. That we see a need in our community among somebody, and we actually work to alleviate their suffering. We do not thoughts and prayers them. Instead, we practically show up to support them. These early communities were egalitarian. They were generous. They were compassionate. And they counteracted the brutality of the world around them by embodying compassion and love in really practical ways to the people they came in contact with. I mean, some of the early apologists for the Christian faith, like a guy named Justin Martyr, um, which was not his last name originally. Um, It's too soon to laugh at that, I think. Um, Maybe. Um, But he essentially says, look... we all are from diverse backgrounds. We used to hate each other. And now we find ourselves giving away our possessions to care for one another. What is that about? And so how has the empire in 300 years, or since the year, through, excuse me, around the mid-300s, how has the empire affected the church? Because that relationship did not change the empire one lick. All right, when, when, when church and empire unite Somebody gets converted, but it isn't Caesar. It's the church. And if you want to see this in real time, watch what the the leader of the Russian church has been saying in support of their war of aggression against Ukraine. It is being baptized by that religious leader because when the church gets in bed with the state, it doesn't change the state. It empowers and emboldens the state. It gives the state new language for their brutality, but it doesn't change the state. It changes the church, And here's how I think it's done it. One, I think it's created this spiritual-political dichotomy so that if you talk to most Christians in America, they're going to say, your pastor shouldn't be getting political on stage. You shouldn't be political. You shouldn't talk about politics. The church is here to talk about people's souls while their bodies are being trampled. And I think my response to that is simple. Politics is just a word that means... Here's how we've decided to order our common life together. Right? That's politics. Politics is how we're gonna run the world. We got there's a bunch of us. We gotta figure out what our laws are, what our policies are, what our plan, we gotta figure out how we're gonna run the world. Everything is about politics. Everything. How many of you like to go shopping? It's about politics. Where's that money go? Who's it supporting? Who made the clothes? Politics. Right? It's all about politics. How many of you like coffee? I don't think, if if you identify as Christian, I don't think you can be one without coffee now. It's (laughs) it's sort of, you know, they they wrote that back into the Nicene Creed. Um, And yeah, where did the beans come from? Who grew them? How justly were they compensated for their labor? Everything is political. I think what people are saying in this is that is too complicated and difficult, and I like my life easy and simple, so I'm going to ignore all of that and just keep talking about going to heaven when I die because it's all going to be better in heaven when I die. Like, that's sort of been the plan. And so I think the empire did a good job saying, listen, listen, here's what you need to do. Just focus on telling people how to go to heaven, be good people. We'll run the world. Y'all don't need to worry about that. You got bigger fish to fry. Let, let, let Caesar run the world. He's already doing it. Why make it complicated? So that now my response to people who say is, you should be focusing on people's souls. I was like, yeah, I think that's what the empire wants you to think. Because if you're worried about what they're doing to cause the, the soul, the bodies that these souls inhabit harm, it might make their lives more difficult. So number two, I think that it's influenced us on economics. I'm, I'm going to shock you. I don't think Jesus was an unrestrained capitalist. I don't know. <laughs> I could be wrong. But it, it's framed how we think about church and how we think about resources and the point of resources in a church. For generation, I'm not talking about now. I'm talking about forever, like since the 300s. Suddenly you go from having to meet in people's shops because you're afraid of the empire to now the empire's building you lavish cathedrals. Seems like a sweet trade, doesn't it? Oh, you're going to stop killing us and build us property? You're going to stop taking our property and give us this nice? You can see how they get there, right? But I think that's influenced with economics and with hierarchy. And with hierarchy. I, I, I just don't think that there were tons of early church leaders who were like, I don't know, like, like intended or in, their, in these early layers of communities, they had people who were leading and speaking, but I don't think it was ever like, I'm the top person and everybody should respond and support and encourage me. I, I don't think that's how it, should, it was intended to work. I don't think in the beginning the church wasn't this hierarchy of importance. Well, oh, what is your role? Okay, then you're up here and you contribute how much? Well, you're up here and you do what? Oh, that's, you're a little farther down the list of importance. I don't think that's how the early church rolled. I don't think that's how they thought about the world. I think they really looked around and said, we are, we're doing this together. And each and every one of us plays a vital role in transforming the world. So let's not sit around and argue who has the most power. Let's take all the power we can muster and do something beautiful in the world with it. That's a different way of being church. I don't think they were worried about the church down the street, whether or not they had a better, like, Smoke machine than they did. I think they were really concerned, like, how can, we work, how can we do this to challenge the brutality of the world and to bring in this world Jesus talked about, which is the same world the prophets talked about? So, this isn't a new idea. It is an ancient vision that we've just never been able to completely get on board with. How do we do that? And so, the thing I've been thinking is, I've watched the, the Supreme Court stuff come out, as I've listened to people, as I've watched, as I've had interactions with people on social media, like, what do we do, uh, specifically for us as progressive Christians? We're a little different. Um, and, and so how, what is our response? And I want to begin with this. The greatest rock, rock and roll singer and, and band of all time is you 2 That is non-negotiable. Bono, the lead singer, has this great line he says often. He says, around the world, we all, because he's from, he's from Ireland, he says, around the world, we all think America is a great idea. Now I would agree that, like, if if we ever got close to anything resembling what we say we are, or hope to be, that's a pretty decent idea, right? I mean, it's written into our documents that. Well, it's actually not written into our documents that everybody's equal. It's all men are created equal. I think what they actually meant was all land-owning men were created. All white land-owning men are created. Do you see how the equality just keeps getting knocked down as you go? But the idea of a, a place that held everybody to be equal, where people had rights and freedoms, where you can march in protest. You should be able to march in protest peacefully without being assaulted by police. Yes. Like, that's a great idea. And, and how, how do we seek as a community, as progressive Christians, how do we seek to make that idea more realistic and more realized? While also acknowledging we have founding myths in our country. Everybody, everything has a founding myth. Do you know this? Churches have founding myths. It was always better some other time. And that's true of countries. That is, that is why when, when um, I'll, just, I'll give you a trigger warning here, honestly. When, when Donald Trump started putting Make America Great Again on a hat, there was a group of people who were like, yes, it was definitely better back then. Now, if you want to pin down an era, they can't give you one because it's never been great for everybody. It's been great for a few folks, which is maybe more telling than we'd like to acknowledge. But this idea of nostalgia, there's a founding myth. America has a founding myth. And there are parts of it that are grounded in history, and there are parts of it that aren't. Christianity has a founding myth. There are parts of it that are grounded in history. There are parts that are not. That's just true of everything. So I think we have to acknowledge that a lot of maybe what we were taught um, isn't necessarily exactly how things were, how they unfolded. I, I do know that I, I come to this with a lot of privilege. And so as I, I'm gonna tell you a lot of things that I don't think are work, and I'm gonna offer one thing that might change it over generations, so don't get too excited. Uh, we're not gonna fix this today. But here's the first thing. Theocracy is a terrible idea. You know what theocracy is? It's like the, ruled by God. Nope, not interested in it. Here's why, who's God? Who's interpretation of God? The first thing I thought when the Supreme Court ruling came out about, like, now teachers and coaches can lead prayers, I thought, I wonder if they would like me to come in. I've got a friend who's an imam. We could come in together. We could, we could teach them. We could, we could learn them. A little something. Can you imagine them going home and telling their parents, and they're going, ah! This is not what we wanted. Um, But this idea of theocracy that, well, if we just follow God's law, then everything will be okay. That proves to you that that person has never once read the Bible. Because in the Hebrew Scriptures and in the New Testament, there are laws and commands and things in place that to put them in place now and today would just be utterly unthinkable, brutal, and sinful. It's okay to say there are things in the Bible I don't agree with that that reflected our community at the time, and we no longer hold that view. That's true today. I held views 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, last week, that I no longer hold today, because when you get better information, you make better decisions. And it's interesting, nobody is, nobody's bringing up like, well, I guess we have to outlaw bacon. <laughs> nobody's trying to do that. They're, they're very targeted and specific in what they mean by we should just follow God's law. That there are communities of people we want to harm, and we want to use the Bible as a pretext to damage people. And I, I just think theocracy is a terrible idea. Run, run, run from theocracy. I think nationalism is a deadly distortion. It's particularly the white Christian version of nationalism that is now in certain pockets and places so very prevalent in our country. It makes me very nervous, and it should make all of us very nervous. And every chance we get to say that that is anti-Christ and anti-gospel, we have to say it. Um, we have to name it. How many of you have been listening to the January 6 hearings? That is white Christian nationalism on display, what happened January 6, 2021. And there are people who are now wearing that badge proudly. At first they they're like, no, we're not that, we're not Christian nationalists. And they're like, yeah, we kind of are. It's kind of what we think. And it's born from this understanding that like, what Jesus wants more than anything is for us to take over the world for Jesus. He said, go ye therefore. But I think we've gotten that wrong. I don't think Jesus ever gave his his disciples marching orders to go into the world and just take it over. I think what he was actually saying in the Great Commission is not go convert and colonize the world. I think what he was saying is, hey, you're going to go into the world. You're going to meet other people who want to be part of this movement. Exclude no one. My God, have we gotten that wrong. So I think nationalism is American as apple pie, and it's unfortunately a poisonous pie. It's deadly and it's dangerous. But also withdrawal is not an option. I went through this phase where I was like reading um, some Anabaptists, and I was reading like Yoder, um, um, John, is it John Howard Yoder, Politics of Jesus. I was reading some of this sort of like pacifist stuff, and, and, and there was part of me that was like, I'm never voting again never going to participate in this, this system that's har- harming people. And then I was like, wow, if I don't vote, I'm actually helping perpetuate a system that's harming people, right? So I, I don't think just pretending like, let's just go into our little world and sing our songs and be happy, and someday it'll all get better just by osmosis. I know that's not how osmosis works, <laughs> but it's just a phrase, and I'm going to use it in that context. Like Maybe that's how the world gets better. I don't think that does. I think when we check out and disengage, the world gets... Worse. I think we've seen uh, when Christians, this time the religious right, when they check in, um, they've made some movement, right? Movement that I think is abhorrent and terrible, but yet movement. They've been engaged. Is there a way to be engaged that isn't playing by their rules and just trying to do the liberal version of that? Because that is still not a good way to be in the world. And and what I'm going to tell you is something you've heard from me like 4,000 times, and that is this. I think we make a commitment to work for the flourishing of every single human being, period. And when that becomes, okay, I know what we're working toward now. We're not working toward my group or my party or my religion or my state or my country. We are now working for the good of every human being that exists on the planet, That is a different way to be in the world. And I actually think that is the gospel. I think when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about that. A reality where every human life can flourish to its fullest and most beautiful depth. I think that's what Jesus was inviting us to. And and that might mean resistance. It might mean voting. It might mean subverting the empire at every chance we get. It might mean... Taking a knee, sometimes. I mean, think about, I was watching Sports Center the other day, and they were talking about Ka- Colin Kaepernick has been trying out for, for teams, and people were giving their opinion on whether or not he should be allowed to play in the NFL. And I was like, for peacefully protesting that black people are being, unarmed black people are being killed by the police, that's un-American? And for some people, it actually is. And we need to change the definition of what it means to be an American. Because if that's the definition of being an American, that's not a very good group to be a part of. And I've seen that, well, we, we, we stand for the flag, we kneel for the cross. Yeah. <laughs> 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 we'll kneel if we have to. We'll subvert. That's what Colin Kaepernick was doing. He was just creating a moment of peaceful protest, but it also spoke volumes. When people engage in peaceful protest, the world can actually be transformed, right? Happened with sit-ins right here in the city. It's part of the civil rights movement. I think when Jesus fed hungry people, it was an act of resistance. I think when Jesus healed sick people, it was an act of resistance. I think he was resisting. There's the way the empire does this. No, 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 here's how we do it. Somebody's hungry, we feed them. We don't go ask Caesar, we do it. And we create bigger. And this is not like, well, let's live Caesar alone. No, we're doing this as a way of subverting that. We're going to change the world through nonviolent action. And I'm not talking about Christian dominance. right? I'm not talking about, well, every, someday everybody's going to be a Christian. How, that actually would be such a boring world to exist in. That's why I've tried to avoid going to heavens for so very long. Because I was taught that it was all Christians, and all you're going to do is sing all the time. <laughs> it's like being perpetually stuck in a musical. Or you're just inflating God's ego for eternity. There's got to be a better option, right? That's not the goal. The goal is every human being, regardless of their label or lack of label, that they would flourish and find wholeness. And so when I think about my identity as as a person, here's what I think of first. I am first and foremost a human being. Before I'm anything else, I'm a human being. Second, because of how I identify, because of where I was born and how I was raised, I'm Christian. And third, because of where I happen to be born, I'm an American. But you have to drill down pretty deep to get to that. Because, first and foremost, because I think that's what Jesus was doing, my concern is for humanity, not for the humanity within the borders of our country, for humanity. And this all begins locally. I know we had some folks from our community in the march a couple nights ago because they've criminalized homelessness in this state. You create a system where people can't survive and then you criminalize it. Christian nation? What? It begins locally. It begins using our voice and our influence and our presence right here in our own communities, and right there in your community, wherever you are watching this from. I don't want to end with this. Expect discomfort as you navigate these complex realities. Expect some awkward moments. Um, I'm not subscribing this to you, I'm just telling you my practice. I don't say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. My allegiance is already spoken for. And so when when I'm at an event where everybody's standing and saying the pledge, It's really awkward because you're like the only person standing there like this. Yeah, it's a little uncomfortable. It's a little uncomfortable. But I cannot pledge my allegiance to a flag that represents a country that is actively harming people I love. And So finding ways to push back, ways that don't stoop to the level of the, the, the people we would say have made this mess to begin with but ways that generously and generatively seek to open up the possibility that the world could be changed. What is the relationship between the church and the state? We, I think we're the, we need to be the conscience. We need to be the nagging, we need to be the dripping water that is saying, this isn't right, this isn't good, this isn't justice for all, no matter how many times you say it in the Pledge of Allegiance. It isn't working. We need a different order, a different world. We need something that works for every single human life. And if we can do that here, y'all know how many cookie jars we have our hands in around the world, right? If we can transform this nation into a better more just and equitable place, I think it's a benefit to the whole wide world. I think it's a benefit to the whole wide world.